Today's episode is called From Doctor to Entrepreneur, featuring guest Jay Feldman. Nearly everyone at some point in their life has struggled with personal health and fitness. Dr. Jay Feldman has made it his mission to help combat this problem and make it affordable for everyone. Firstly, how did you discover that you were interested in becoming an osteopathic doctor? Yeah, so I'm actually a first-generation doctor, uh, obviously kind of growing up in like a middle-class Jewish household. Uh, my grandmother is the one who kind of pushed me into it. I'm a big believer in trying everything before you commit your life to it. So I believe it was my freshman year of college, got my first job as a, a medical a medical scribe in the emergency room, and I was following doctors around, uh, helping them do their do their notes, learning the medical lingo, shadowing them as they would change people's lives in the emergency room, and that's what really sparked my interest in it. Uh, I was good at it. It was a, a safe career that was going to offer me a certain status and lifestyle. I think that was one of the the honest draws to it. Uh, but it wasn't until shadowing that I really kind of thought that I I could do this. This could be me. But I will say things changed quite a bit during medical school and training when I kind of saw the reality of what it was like as a doctor, as a practicing physician. So things did change, but that's kind of how I got an interest in it. Switched my major to pre-med, excelled at that, did very well on my medical exams, uh, and ended up getting into osteopathic medical school as my, my first choice. Uh, I chose osteopath over MD. For anyone who's in the medical field, they'll, they'll kind of understand where I'm going with this. There's two types of MDs. There's the highly competitive research-based schools within the U.S., and then there's the overseas medical schools in the Caribbean, both of those being MD. I'll be frank, my focus when I was uh, studying in the university wasn't fully on, into medicine. I was captain of the volleyball team. I was in a fraternity. I was running a company. So I didn't have the scores and the extracurriculars to get into one of those research-based MDs in the U.S. Did not want to go over to the Caribbean. I was an athlete. I was very into alternative and holistic medicine. I was very into musculoskeletal medicine. So osteopathic was kind of the, the obvious choice for me. Right. Osteopathy in Australia is a slightly different profession here. It's more similar to to physical therapy. Like a chiropractor, right? They're not they're not they don't have a medical license, they can't prescribe, they can't do surgery. Here it's a totally different thing. Here it's an equivalent degree to the MD. So we're able to prescribe, we're able to train alongside MDs and surgical residencies, plastic surgery, dermatology, all of the highest, most competitive specialties, we train right alongside them. UK is the same thing. A lot of countries have different rules and regulations for osteopathy, different training, uh, but that's kind of how it works in the United States. Same amount of training, same residency programs. Right. How does osteopathy school work in, in the US? Can you go straight into it after high school or do you have to do an undergrad and then go into osteopathy school? Sure. So yes, same as MD school. So in the US, we have to do four years of undergrad as well, have to meet certain pre-med qualifications in the courses that we take, the normal biology, chemistry, biochem, orgo. We all have to take the same MCATs to get into medical school. Uh, It's the, I mean, I don't even know what it stands for anymore. It was so long ago. So after that four years of undergrad training, we do our MCAT and we apply to medical school. It's the same, pretty much same application that goes out to MD and DO schools. Right. Fantastic. And you graduated quite recently, two years ago, I believe. 
Yeah, graduated from medical school in 2019, did a year of training in family medicine, uh, and then actually left my training. So I'm not board certified in anything, uh, more of a general practitioner. And right now I'm not even seeing patients clinically. I'm working full time on my company and on my medical education. So educating others about the health issues that I'm very passionate about. What makes you so passionate about sharing health information? This is something that you're quite a big proponent on in social media. It is. Uh, and this is kind of what I wanted to dedicate my life to. I felt as a family medicine doctor uh, back when I was practicing under the normal like healthcare administration, like I was just a cog in the wheel. Uh, I wasn't able to really touch people. I was just executing orders, doing the textbook medicine that I was being told to do, which I don't necessarily believe in. There's a big kind of difference of opinion between traditional doctors who kind of play by the book and then all of the new stuff and research that hasn't been proven yet, things that people can do to better their health and preventative medicine. So I kind of want to bridge that gap. That's my goal. I want to give people the best possible information, not diluted by the media, not diluted by the the Karens of Western medicine. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting place that, that I like to fall in. I'm very passionate about supplementation, which Western medicine has traditionally been opposed to, no doubt because of the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm a huge proponent for healing naturally and preventing anything from happening so people never even have to enter the medical system. So I don't know how the medical system is in Australia, but here it is messed up. I would not want to be a patient uh, right now, specifically without insurance and with uh, something that required ongoing care, uh, a nightmare. In Australia, most things are covered by the government. And if they're not, they're going to be mostly affordable. You're looking at mostly a few hundred dollars, rarely thousands. Yeah, I don't know how you guys afford that over there. Uh, that's an amazing system. You know, here, even to see a specialist, you have to wait several months, see if it's covered by your insurance. It's usually not. If that specialist wants to do testing on you, that testing is probably not going to be covered by your insurance, even if you have good insurance. It's just a really a terrible system. And I think it, it stems from a lot of different problems. We've tried a lot of things to solve it. That's an episode in itself. Like, what's what's wrong with the American medical system? But it is broken and corrupted. Uh, and I'm trying to do my part in changing that, which is through education and prevention. As someone that's that's been involved in America's healthcare system, can you explain why it costs so much? Because as, as an Australian, I don't really understand that. <laughs> I'll do my best because uh, it's multifactorial and it's it's a tough problem. It's one that we haven't been able to solve. And I think it goes back to a few different things. One, the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industries are corrupted. Uh, they're making enormous profits and they're passing that all down to the consumers. Uh, and then the other kind of problem that this is all stemming from is I don't know what the obesity rate is like in Australia, but people in the United States are generally much more unhealthy than others. And they have the right to the same level of care. So regardless if they have insurance or not, those are going to be the ones using those, going to the hospital, going to the emergency room, using all of the clinics, using all of the resources from the hospital and not paying their bill. And the, the bill doesn't just disappear. It gets redistributed and handed over to people that can pay for it in the form of higher premiums, more expensive medical treatment. Uh, so those are the two issues that I think are driving this. And 
man, solving it is a whole beast in itself because the influence the pharmaceutical and insurance industries have on the government is massive. And the marketing dollars that these big companies like Coca-Cola and Nestle are able to spend to acquire customers and keep them addicted to their products is massive. Uh, and it's it's a perpetuating cycle and it's going to be a hard one to get out of. I could only imagine Australia's got a population similar to that of New York. So about a tenth of the size of America's population. Yeah, a bit easier, easier to manage and uh, set rules and regulations. Exactly. I'm curious to know more about why did you leave medicine? We've, talk, we've talked a little bit about this. Can you delve more into why you wanted to leave medicine and pursue business? Sure. Uh, happy to. So during my fourth year at medical school, I essentially took off of training. I spent most of that time running my business, growing my business to seven figures. So I was doing very well, even in medical school. Uh, and then entered into my training and it was probably a mistake choosing the specialty that I did, which was family medicine. I wanted to become a, a jack of all trades, learn how to help people with the most simple and popular, I don't want to say popular, not more widespread conditions so that I can impact the most people. What I ended up doing and learning was a lot of annual physicals with patients that didn't actually want care, didn't want to make any changes, spending half of my time on a computer just to learn that family medicine doctors were making $150,000 a year before taxes, which are 30, 40% in some states. So I was just a little disheartened by the entire thing and knew that that wasn't my only option. Uh, and then I don't want to call it a blessing because it was almost a curse. Uh, during my first year of training, uh, I was actually nearly forced out by my program due to a lot of my activity on social media, due to my businesses that I was running. I was essentially asked to leave. So I did. I, I, I left the residency and went full time into business and into education. And I've never been happier. I've never made more money and I've never felt like I was touching more lives and, and impacting more people. So it was a good decision, even in the short term, but hoping to, to see this, really what this turns into long term, it's going to be a beautiful thing. What are the rules around doctors in the US having social media accounts? Is that is that allowed? Is there privacy issues around that? I believe you're referring to HIPAA. Uh, so that's the law protecting patients and doctors from sharing any patient information. Uh, so no, I mean, that's a big no-no. You don't share patient names. You don't share pictures of patients uh, without their explicit and written consent. Now, doctors having social media platforms and using them as a platform to educate, yes, but that's very hard to do if you're affiliated with an institution, especially when it comes to sharing opinions or medical advice that is not FDA approved, clinically proven. For example, even sharing advice that turmeric is a supplement you can take and that works. Because there's not overwhelming evidence that turmeric is effective for you know treating inflammation, uh, a doctor that was working with a hospital couldn't share that information. If they had a an opinion on COVID vaccines that didn't align with the you know the media rhetoric about the COVID vaccine, that's not information that they could share. Uh, so it's it is very controlled, uh, and doctors know that. Doctors know what they can and can't say. Hospitals tell them it's out there, but it's kind of scary because the all of the conversation and all the information being shared is very much dictated by the hospital, which is dictated by the media, which is dictated by the pharmaceutical and the insurance companies. 
and it's just kind of a really vicious, scary cycle that we're in. You have to be on top of your, your like the medical aspects of being a doctor, but also the, the legal aspects too. Yeah, and, and honestly, it's not rocket science. Uh, if you're going to post something, you just got to make sure it's backed by science and it's with the left-wing narrative, which is you, know, you got to go get vaccines. Vaccine passports are cool. You know, it's happening in your country right now. But again, we're trained medical professionals. We know what the narrative is. We know what we can and can't say. The tricky part is when you don't agree with that narrative and you want to say that maybe being vegan isn't that healthy. You know, maybe not everyone needs to get a COVID vaccine. Maybe natural immunity is real. You can have those thoughts, but you can't you can't post them because then you're out of there. You're out of there. You're out of there. Wow. Powerful stuff, huh? Scary. Very regulated in, in the US by the sounds of it. Yeah, and not officially regulated, right? Like the you, the hospital can't say you can't post your opinions, but it's it's very clear you're representing that institution. That institution needs to be reflected in a certain way. So you're on the hook, and it's it's a scary kind of thing and predicament that we're in. Since you now run your own businesses, how much of liability do you have towards being a doctor still? And that's the beautiful thing about this, right? By disaffiliating myself from anyone else's business and only being responsible for my own business and not being board certified so they can't strip that. They can never strip my medical degree. I have zero liability. The only liability that I could possibly have if I was giving medical advice and inappropriately giving medical advice, then I could get sued for that. Uh, but I don't see patients clinically anymore, so that doesn't happen. Medical advice is not education. That's different. Medical advice is when you're speaking to one person about a specific disease and giving treatment for a specific disease. That's medical advice. If I'm creating a course for men who are dealing with low testosterone, who are dealing with hair loss, or for people to increase their energy levels, and they're going through my course content, which is generic, I'm speaking to a massive audience. I'm not speaking to one person about their one disease. I have no liability in what I'm currently doing. I have a lawyer on staff to tell me what I can and can't do. Uh, but that's really my only restriction is one-on-one -on -one medical advice. I, ha I can release my opinions. I can create content. I can talk about whatever I want. And this is exactly the freedom that, that I've always wanted, needed. I think this is the only way nowadays to get it. Even having a medical license, an active medical license, puts you at risk. If they can take it away, they will. And it's, it's very scary. Yeah, definitely. How has being a doctor influenced your own life? I've been curious about how people's careers have changed their lives. For example, astronauts, it changes their ability to make decisions and make decisions around risk. How has being a doctor influenced your own life? Ah, uh, man, probably more ways than not. Being a doctor and the journey to becoming a doctor is such an impact on my life. Just from like being in the hospital and seeing and working with families who have lost so much, people who have lost so much, quadriplegics, families seeing their six-year-old daughter killed in a car crash, treating you know grandparents who are dying early because they don't want to take care of their health. So first and foremost, I think being a doctor and becoming a doctor gives you a superhuman level of gratitude that most people can never have. Now, on the flip side of that, I think being a doctor and becoming a doctor makes you a little bit more emotionally 
shut off than a lot of other people because we've become so tolerant to that that sort of pain and that trauma. So I think I'm very, it's made me much, much more of an emotionally stable person. I, you know, I haven't cried since sixth grade. I can see pain and feel it, but I, I don't have emotional responses to it. Uh, but at the same time, I wake every day, wake up every day, I take a deep breath. And I'm just so gracious for my health and the health of my family, because that's something that people take for granted, but is so precious and so delicate. And more than that, you know, the journey to becoming a doctor is obviously academically rigorous. So that translated into every other aspect of my life. I think that's what makes me a great entrepreneur. I get little sleep. I work my butt off on business and on content on everything else that I do uh, to a level that most people never had to learn and adapt to because they didn't have to study for 14 hours and focus for that much time throughout the week. That's something that I think puts me at a massive advantage. And also just being able to think and study and process things at a higher level than most people ever have to forces your brain to kind of, I don't want to say expand, but open up to knowledge and a higher level of knowledge and a higher level of processing than most people have to. I, I feel like I learn very quickly. I work very fast. You know, that's made me a, a dangerous entrepreneur and I'm grateful for it. Do you feel that you had to go through medical school to get to where you are? Did you have to find out that business was what you wanted only going through osteopathy school? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm a strong believer that life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. Everything that's happened along the way, a lot of people don't know I was arrested when I was 17. Uh, that affected me, my ability to get into most universities. At that time, it seemed like, you know, the worst thing that could ever happen, right? I was never going to come back from this. But silver lining, you know, it ended up pushing me into a corner and making me adapt to fill the shoes that I knew I could. And I'm like, screw this. I'm going to prove everyone wrong. I'm going to go to medical school. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to help people. And that was what I needed at the moment. It made me get my priorities straight and led me in the direction that I'm currently going. I think medical school was, you know, one one more of those things. And the situation with the residency led me to where I am today. Everything happens for a reason. I think now I'm in a place to be able to help massive amounts of people. I wanna serve men who are dealing with health issues. And I think I'm gonna be in a unique place to do that because not only am I educated and dangerous, but now I'm a very dangerous marketer, which is an interesting combination. Now I'll be able to actually reach all of these men that are struggling with their health issues, whether it be testosterone or hair, erectile dysfunction, and really be able to impact their lives at a, in a way that I never would have had I not done what I've accomplished leading up to today. And so all these prior experiences too, that, that gives you this level of compassion with, with the people that you're connecting to. Yes, absolutely. It makes me want to serve them at a deeper level, touch people on a, on a larger, massive scale. You hit it on the nail. I was speaking to a psychotherapist from New York yesterday and she was, and she was saying that when for some people, when they go through adversity, on the other side, they become more resilient. And that sounds like the same case with you when you went from being arrested to now being the successful entrepreneur slash doctor. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was in a, a, a business conference. Some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world uh, were in this room and Tony Robbins was speaking. Uh, and he's like, you know, it's a horrible story. Like someone who was really smart, went to a great school, got an awesome job got married, had a family, still had an awesome job, and then retired, but died. Like, that sucks. 
great entrepreneurs, great people, the titans are all driven by some sort of pain, at least the ones that were in this room, most of them. Tony asked, like, what drives you? Was there something that happened in your life that caused you pain, that turned you into this person, led you to work harder than most people, build something that was would be scary for most people? The entire room raised their hand. Almost all of us that have built something worthwhile, and people have in this room have built things 10, 100 times bigger than what I've built, all driven by a certain amount of pain. I do think it requires something traumatic to happen in your life in order for you to make that decision to embrace the fear and just go 110 at whatever that goal is to dig yourself out of whatever pain make sure that you're never going to experience it make sure your family's never going to experience it and to put in hours that are superhuman to make that happen people who don't have pain don't have that same level of motivation that i have and i believe that to be true did you have a backup plan in case any of these didn't work in case the business didn't work yeah uh, you know, I, I could go and get a job right now as a CMO, like a chief marketing officer for a, a startup or a, a large company making $500,000 a year. I've had several offers on the table, uh, which is more than doctors make. No, I never had a backup plan. I don't know if you've heard the term. You got to burn the burn the bridges, burn the boats. And that means like once you commit to something and you're serious about it, you really want to see where it can take you and make it as big as you can possibly make it. The only way to achieve that goal is to burn all of your backup plans. Burn the boats behind you so you can't get back. Because if you're having your head all the whole time, you know, if this doesn't work, I'll just I'll just go do that. You're never really gonna commit 100% to that goal that you actually set forth that you want to accomplish. And I, I've been fortunate enough in my life to, even in my failures, have been successful enough to not have to go find a backup plan. The failures have just transitioned into new successes. I think I attribute that to one, my work ethic, and two, my ability to adapt and learn on the go. Uh, but no, uh, to be totally honest, there's never really been a backup plan. Thank God I've never needed one. But again, if you're pursuing something that's worthwhile, that you really believe in, that's a massive goal of yours, then trash your backup plan. Burn the boats. Commit 110%. If it doesn't work out, I promise you, you'll you'll be able to figure it out. And you'll have learned enough along the way to give you the skills to be dangerous in any of the backup plans that would have existed. For a lot of people who are worried about starting a business, they're also thinking about, do I start a business or do I go down the path of starting a family and buying a house? It's like, these are really big economical questions. How did you figure these big questions out? As much as I'm a huge proponent of being an entrepreneur, being a business owner, being your own boss, I'm definitely the first one to acknowledge that it's not for everyone. Uh, not everyone has the, it's, it's really a, an amount of risk tolerance. Uh, you know, the definition of entrepreneurship, an entrepreneur is those who are much more likely to take risk and more willing to take risk than others. So if you're in a position to take massive risk and you have that sort of risk tolerance and you think you have the skills and the emotional capacity to make it happen, there is no better thing in the world than to be your own boss. I can, tomorrow, I'm, I'm leaving town, I'm going to spend the week in Nashville with my, with my friends from high school, and I'm gonna be paid while I do it. I'm gonna, I make money in my sleep, it's a beautiful thing, but it spent a lot of time to get here. I spent two years, uh, and that's on the current business, 10 years in business, a lot of it being a lot of uncertainty, a lot of poverty, 
when you're first starting and bootstrapping the whole thing, you're eating cheap, you're not going out on weekends because you can't afford to and you need to work. I was working more than I was working in the hospital just to be able to survive. But eventually you're able to build something that's not just a job, it's a system. And that system is what sustains you, what makes you money, what gives you that freedom where you can step away, go do what you want. And now you have passive income. You have something that you can sell later down the road for 10x multiples. But again, it's it's a risk, right? Not everyone's willing to spend three to five years learning the skills, living in poverty, working three times the amount that you would in a job to make a quarter the amount in return just for the chance of failing. If you have anyone that's dependent on you, if you're in a position in your life where you're married and you have kids, all of those factors make it much harder. But again, if you're young and you can tolerate the risk, freaking go after it because there's, there's, there's no better thing in the world than not having a boss. Where did you develop this high tolerance for risk? Was it from being a doctor? Was it prior life experiences? Where did you develop this high tolerance for risk? Man, I wish I had an answer for that. It's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. I think, you know, growing up, even when I was a teenager, I was taking a risk, stupid risk. I don't know where it comes from. It's not from my family. They're, my dad's a little Jewish CPA, never taken a risk in his life. My mom is probably the least risk tolerant person ever. I don't know where it comes from, but it's been around for a while, obviously, at least since I was 17, but definitely earlier. No idea. That's a good question. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk says DNA. There's a portion of it where you can't teach, where you can't learn, where it's not just decisions and hard work, but really a part of your DNA that just you grow up as an entrepreneur somehow. Like, I don't know what makes it's almost like that X factor that can't really be contextualized. Like, can you can, does the gay person decide to be gay or is there something in the DNA? I don't I don't know. There's no answer to that. I think entrepreneurship might have a, a similar X factor. It might be in the DNA. It might be something that was triggered during childhood. Uh, but all I know is it, it, it's there for me and a lot of entrepreneurs that I've talked to say the same. My theory is that partly DNA, but also the environment that you've grown up around. If, you, if you've grown up around a lot of innovation, a lot of entrepreneurs really inspiring sort of environment then maybe you may be more willing to to take those risks yeah and as a scientist you know we we hear the nature versus nurture all the time right and in almost every scenario i agree with you i think it's both a combination of both and some of it comes from somewhere some of it comes from some somewhere else uh, but I, I strongly believe that there's a genetic component that's activated by something that happens along the line in your childhood because we have a lot of neuroplasticity so all you need is the gene for something lying dormant and then a trigger to activate that gene. It might be one moment in your childhood that sparks you and says, you know, we're going to activate this. This isn't going to happen. You're going to be this person. And that's really an amazing thing to think about. Uh, but I, I agree with you 100%. What I've seen from a lot of people that have achieved enormous success was that, as you've been saying, that it came from a lot of adversity. Uh, like Warren Buffett, he had a pretty rough childhood. Tony Robbins had a pretty rough childhood. You've had, you've been arrested and now you're this successful entrepreneur and you've come out on the other side more resilient. Yeah, no, 100%. Tony was telling his, his story. Obviously, I, I've heard it. Most people have heard that a thousand times. Uh, and what's really interesting is when you listen to the stories of a lot of these titans, a lot of these larger than life CEOs, 
a lot of them have similar stories. They were, you know, raised in extreme poverty. They were beaten, you know, sexually abused. And it's really incredible to see that similarity across the board. Are, it all comes from a place of pain. And that is a very interesting thing. Uh, I actually talked to somebody who manufactures these traumatic events in his life because he knows if it's all sunshine and rainbows, he's not going to grow from that. He's not going to have any motivation from that. Uh, so just these little micro traumas. Uh, and he's got his friends in on it. A lot of times they're fake, but he thinks the world is falling apart. He's got to kick into action. Again, it's easy to become complacent when you're successful. It's like, all right, you know, I'm making a million dollars a year. I'm just going to, you know, sit on my butt, collect my paycheck, travel with my family. In order to get to a certain level, you have to push way past that. It's easy to get complacent when you're when you have a certain level of success. It's really hard and takes a certain amount of motivation and discipline and a reason to keep going way after you reach those levels. And it's those larger than life characters that are able to do it. And it's through pain. How has your life changed once you achieved all this success, all this entrepreneurial success, financial success? How has your life changed? So I'm at a point now, which is it's interesting you bring it up, uh, where I have had some financial success. I do have the freedom to do basically whatever I want. So it's important for me because I also have the pain and I have the drive to be one of the one of the greats. So as glamorous as it might sound to have financial freedom and freedom over my time, this past conference, this past weekend, I was surrounded by people who are 10xing what I'm doing. And that inspired me to, you know, I sold my festival tickets. I'm buckling down that uh, obviously this weekend I had planned, but I'm going to sit here and I'm going to work. I'm going to hustle on my business. I'm going to keep going, keep pushing. I'm trying to 10x my company in the next five years and sell it. To do that, I'm going to be working 100 hour weeks. My life's probably not going to be that much different than that of a medical student or a resident and the amount of work and hours that I'm putting in. Freedom and money, those things give you the tools to do whatever you want. But a lot of entrepreneurs, such as myself, are never satisfied with vanity and toys and, and trips. For us, it's about continuing to grow and progress. And like Tony Robbins says, growth is happiness. If you're not growing, you're not going to be happy. And I strongly believe that. That's why I refuse to sit down, collect my paychecks, buy fancy toys, and not grow as a person, not grow my business. While continue to go to conferences, continue to do courses, find mentors who are better than me, uh, so that I can continue to grow and I can continue to be happy. This peer-reviewed research that suggests that after seventy-five thousand dollars, people don't gain any more happiness. I read the study. Yep. Exactly. I've looked at more studies into money and and quality of life, and it suggests that as you increase your net worth your longevity increases too because then you're able to buy better quality foods, live in safer neighborhoods. You know what I would love to see a study on, which I haven't seen yet, uh, which I'm sure exists, I just have to look for it, is because you're right, you know, after 75000 assuming that you're an employed person, you have a boss, you're making a salary, mm -hmm. and anywhere from 75000 to 300000 say, is your salary. You still have a boss. You don't have freedom over your time. You may have a certain level of financial freedom. I'll be honest, with my current salary, I can afford, or salary, with what I'm making, I can afford whatever I want. I don't want that many things. I understand that study. 
because 75,000 will buy you essentially the same stuff as someone who's making 200,000. You might have a little nicer of a house, a little nicer of a car, but again, like your your basic needs are taken care of. You give me someone who's making 100,000 with a job and 70,000 with your own business where you have total freedom and control over your time. I guarantee you the happiness is going to be 20x for that person who does not have to answer to someone has freedom uh, control over their time that person with the job no matter how much you're making over 75 money will only get you so much you need time you need a, a way to to spend it to grow and to live your life as an employee really hard to grow and i strongly believe growth is happiness and in order to grow you need the freedom of time to be able to grow and you need to have a reason to grow as an employee what you're going to get a promotion and then you're, in, you're there for five years doing the same thing over and over again. Then maybe you get another promotion. As a self-employed person or a business owner, you're continuously able to scale yourself, scale your company and see growth, not just once every five or 10 years, but every month. And that's a pretty amazing thing that keeps me happy. And I think keeps that whole category of entrepreneurs very happy. If you were to start today from zero dollars no network, how would you start building a life for yourself? Sure, so I'm 29 years old. If I were to forget everything that I know about business and medicine and decide to go into business, is that the question? Yes. The first thing I would recommend that everybody does, we're so lucky, right, to live in a time where we the knowledge is just at our fingertips. We can just throw some things into a keyboard and learn essentially whatever we want. The first place I would start is YouTube. Uh, so I suggest every entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur, if you want to start a business, the first thing that you do is learn digital marketing. If you can market something, you can then work with other companies, play with their money, learn what to do, learn what they're doing in business, and then take pieces of what you learn. Uh, you get to run their ads, run their social media, learn how all of these things work. And then eventually you're going to have an aha moment. You're going to make all the money that you need very quickly in digital marketing because it's a high paid position. It's relatively easy to do and easy to learn. And then you'll have an aha moment. During that aha moment, that's when you take all of those skills that you learned in digital marketing and you apply them to your own company, whether that be a product that you're selling, a service that you're selling, an agency, brick and mortar. If you can market something, you can sell something. It might take you know a year or two before that idea comes to you, but you're gonna learn so many skills, digital marketing, uh, that you can translate to your own company. So that's what I would do. I would open a digital marketing agency. I'd probably start as a freelancer and then eventually hire some people, continue to master that craft, and then wait till that first idea really hits and then go all in on that one idea. Did you ever feel like you were missing out on anything by not having an MBA? You know, I had a, a guy on my show, Shiv. He's a top 500 entrepreneur, uh, dropped out of medical school to go to Harvard MBA school and pursue his company. Uh, the only thing I, I think I'm missing, because I've talked to multiple Harvard MBAs uh, and other top MBA programs, the big takeaway from that is the network. So if you're in tech, if you're in startup, if you're raising money, if you're in one of one of those categories, going to get that Harvard MBA is going to be helpful for meeting people, uh, plugging into investors, plugging into business partners, plugging into those networks. Not for what you learn. You don't learn to be an entrepreneur getting an MBA. You learn to be an entrepreneur by being on the ground, watching YouTube videos, trying, failing, trying to sell stuff, trying to market stuff, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. They don't teach you that at an MBA school.
They teach you how to work for a big company. They teach you the, the tools to operate and, and manage one, but not to run one, not to start one. That's a whole other ballgame. A lot of entrepreneurs say that by not having gone through a business school, that they can set their own rules and then they can discover it themselves. I almost agree with that. And I think it might be a an advantage not, not having gone to a business school and not having studied business in, in college. I think those things didn't distract me from the mission. I wasn't worried about you know spreadsheets and traditional marketing and all the old school stuff that they teach. Business is changing every day, every week. The conference that I went to was teaching something totally different than the same conference that I went to a year ago. Things stop working, products get hot, e-commerce gets hot, agency life gets hot, and then they die and you have to re-figure things out. So as an entrepreneur, if you're not constantly adapting, you're gonna burn out, you're gonna die. And I strongly believe MBA school teaches you the principles of running a corporation, doesn't teach you entrepreneurship. As we come towards the end of our interview, to have a few remaining questions I'd like to ask you that I ask every guest. I love it. Hit me. What does living healthier today mean to you? Great question. I actually did an IG Live with an anxiety coach yesterday. And especially for the new generation, especially during COVID, who's sitting there, you know, attached to their screens, we're going to see and we're already seeing massive changes in mental health numbers people who are suffering with anxiety and depression. And I strongly, strongly recommend that everybody takes up the practice of understanding this. Uh, So every time you pick up your phone and scroll through the feed, to know what it's doing to your mental health and to know what to do to counteract it. So one of the things is, you know, throw your plane in airplane mode at, at night when it's time for bed and close it an hour early before it's time for bed. Set limits for your screen time for the different social media platforms. Meditate. If you can make this a, a daily habit, you'll, it'll do wonders for your ability to focus and your ability to control your emotional response, including anxiety and depression. That's the biggest thing. I think that's the biggest takeaway for anyone listening. Control your mental health. If you're able to master your inner world, everything else will come. You'll have all the money that you need, the freedom that you need, uh, but it all starts with mastering your inner self and acknowledging the damage that you're doing by sitting on this all day, every day, watching TV all day, playing video games. Those things are killing you. Exactly. You have had this tremendous transformation from the time that you were 18 to where you are now. What would you tell your 18-year-old self? 18-year-old Jay was just coming out of that horrible period where he was arrested. He didn't get into any of the colleges that he wanted to go to and felt like a failure. If I was able to go talk to my 18-year-old self, I would say, you better work your butt off or your life's going to suck. I am motivated by pain. I'm motivated by uh, fear of being complacent and an average. I would not tell 18-year-old Jay that it was going to be okay, that you're going to be successful. I think that would hurt 18-year-old Jay. I would light a fire under that kid's butt and tell him that he's got to work if he's going to make it or else things are not going to be so good. So good question. And I never thought about that, but I'd, I'd light a fire under his butt. It is the common theme amongst all of the guests that they want to get healthy so they can show up better for others. Yeah, you can't serve others if you're not serving yourself. you got to put your mask on first. Same thing goes for entrepreneurship. If I'm going to perform and work 12 hours a day, I better feel good. Uh, if I'm going to feel good, I better exercise, I better eat right. I know if I eat a you know bag of French fries, I'm going to have a cloud over my face all day, just inflamed and unable to think. Uh, so in order to serve others, I need to take care of myself. So I 100%. Exactly. Is there 
any last remaining things you would like to share? For listeners who are are listening for health reasons, uh, I want to really reinforce the meditation. I know it sucks. I know you might start thinking that you're bad at it. It's not going to work. You maybe you're doing it for a month, don't notice any difference. Figure out a way to make yourself do it. Our generation is plagued and and blessed with this, but we need to really acknowledge the damage that it's doing. And meditation, I think, is the cure. All of the ADHD and Adderall that's being prescribed is not necessary. It can all be fixed with meditation. You just got to train your brain to be able to focus because right now we are so overstimulated, we're crippled. So if you're able to be the 1% who's not crippled, you're going to have any life that you want. That'll be my last message. Uh, I really want to reinforce that. I hope everyone takes that very seriously. It's a lot of freedom in, in self-discipline. Yeah, yeah, self-discipline is freedom. You figure out how to get your brain to listen to you and not let your brain control you. You're going to have any life that you want. Uh, when I, when a, a thought pops in my head and I'm trying to argue with myself, just sleep in, eat the chips, just scream, override. And I know that it's bad for me. I don't want to have that conversation. I'm in control of my brain. I'm in control of my thought process. And a lot of that is through meditation. But yes, if you're able to do that, you're able to master that, there's nothing you can't have, nothing you can't do. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, back at you. I want to, I want to know what your top tip is for, for health. What do you think the biggest issue right now in the health space is for people that are your age, uh, younger people that you're talking to, you're in the grind. So I want to know what you're hearing, what you're feeling. My one tip for health is just to have one trait, and that is conscientiousness. If you're going to do something, do it completely and do it properly. And you go see your doctor, you really commit to it, and you go see your doctor. And that's really going to help you live longer. If you've scheduled a workout, really commit to it and show up to that workout. Conscientiousness, doing things completely and properly and fully. Yep, I love that. Taking that one step further, one of my my mentors says, if you're going to do something, do it 100%. If you're brushing your teeth, make it the best time you've ever brushed your teeth every time. If you're going to go to sleep, freaking make it the best sleep you've ever had. If you're going to make your bed, do it freaking perfectly. If you operate like that in all of your day-to-day activities, everything that you do is going to be spectacular. You're going to have a very high self-esteem. You're going to expect greatness from yourself in all assets, facets of life. Uh, so that's a great tip. I'm glad that you, you share that and you preach that. A trained osteopathic doctor, Jay left medicine to pursue business full-time. Within six months, he built a seven-figure agency and a social media following of over 200,000 followers. His main venture is Rex Fitness, a startup determined to help people stay healthy by building an exercise community accessible for free from the comfort of one's home. Jay is working hard to make sure everyone has the opportunity to live a healthy life. Share this podcast with one person who you think would benefit from it. Leave a rating and review of the Healthy Today podcast on Apple Podcasts. Our team includes assistant Tania and Akia Sadia, scriptwriter Brian Ariotto, and voiceover Yanni Harris. This episode was produced by Resonate Recordings. In tomorrow's episode, you'll hear from Pandit Dessa about the life lessons he has to share about living a good life as a former monk. Mm-hmm.